All right, good to see you. you open your Bibles to Book of Esther, Chapter Two. Esther, Chapter Two. Okay, so if you if you remember, we've uh, the author has has set us up uh, with uh, the uh, first first chapter and a lot of uh, very uh, humorous events. <laughs> I think you maybe talked about that hopefully last week. But a lot of humorous events that take place here. Uh, the king starts out with a. Uh, six-month extravaganza of a party, and he's invited all his nobles uh, to to come to the party, and it just ramps up more and more. Uh, you might remember that we know historically, by the way, there's a guy named Herodotus who wrote secular history about this, especially this era of the Persians and the Persian Empire. So we learn a lot of background just from Herodotus. Uh, and, uh, and so in this, in this particular case, he, he, he talks about the fact that uh, this party fits the exact year, 483, when he did call all his nobles together uh, for the purpose of, uh, of, of partying with them and showing them his great wealth and the wealth of the Persian Empire and just the extravagance of it to convince them uh, to allow him to go to war against Greece. And the, the, the pinnacle moment apparently was, all right, guys, now I'm going to show you the queen. And he calls for the queen to come in and and show her show her beauty to all of them, and uh, the, the eunuch comes back and says she ain't coming. <laughs> and there you go, <laughs> we start a domino effect, you know, that uh, just sets off the whole rest of the uh, rest of the story. And uh, I I do really love the part where uh, these men all get together. And uh, I can't help but think that Jews years later read this first chapter and they all just died laughing, you know, because uh, all these men are going, we're going to insist that these women respect us. And so we're going to put out a law and make them respect us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that they don't do something like Vashti did. And wouldn't that be, uh, uh, be awful? And we, We'd, we'd lose our wives, you know. We'll threaten them. You, you, you do, do that, we'll just get rid of you. And uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know, the rest of the men might have thought, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to lose my life <laughs> like, like this crazy king did. any rate, there's, there's the situation, and uh, we're all set then for, for chapter 2. Just a little background here. Uh, as far as dates are concerned. This is interesting. So as we said, chapter 1 is taking place in 483 B.C. Queen Vashti gets, gets demoted and is never going to be allowed to come into the presence of the king again. Uh, and that is in the third year of the reign of Xerxes. So you, you have all of this set up. And then Esther did not become queen for four years. 
So she does not become queen until 479 B.C. in the, uh, in the seventh year of the reign of uh, Hasherosh. So uh, you, you, see, you see her becoming king, queen at that time. So there's all this gap of time. And you say, well, what, what was going on in between? Well, he's off at war. You know, he, he gets the approval from the nobles. And so he takes off and goes battles and goes and battles Greece. And he's in the midst of, of just being humiliated in the, in the war against Greece and trying to, uh, to conquer them. And uh, in his defeat, he, he utterly depletes the Persian treasury. So they were so, so, so wealthy. And then after this, uh, he's not only lost so much of his money, but he's been discredited uh, before all of his subjects. So he's, he comes back an entirely different king uh, than, he, than he was before. In fact, Herodotus describes the king's life after his defeat as sensual, self in, uh, sensual overindulgence. Uh, he um, has numerous sexual encounters with anything that he can find. Uh, and what is his demise is he begins having sexual encounters even with the wives of some of his officers which leads to him being assassinated in his bedroom in 465 B.C. And, of course, that's not the first time somebody tried to assassinate him because we have an assassination attempt even in this particular story. So you get a little idea of this man. He's, uh, he, he, he really needs the Lord. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He could, he could use God uh, and, and get, get him, himself back into this. Now, one other thing as far as background. Lest you think, now, you know, when you just read the story, you, you, you say to yourself, whoa, you know, he lost. Vashti and it's four years before he gets another queen? I, I don't know that any guy would like that. That didn't, that didn't sound good. Well, uh, he's like Solomon. Uh, he has oodles and oodles of concubines at his disposal at any given time. Uh, he's not a monogamous man. Uh, the queen is just the, the, the head girl. Uh, he's got plenty of other girls. In fact, his great-grandson, uh, who uh, is Artaxerxes II, uh, we know he had somewhere in the neighborhood of 360 concubines. And it was not uncommon for uh, Persian kings to have a large harem of concubines and uh, and so often you know they just gathering these girls and bring them in and just like we see in Esther one night with the king and he never, may never ask you back and you end up the rest of your life living in luxurious desolation basically so uh, there, there you go uh, so aren't you glad you weren't born uh, in, as, uh, in that uh, particular uh, time period? And these are some of the things that the author of the book is loading onto us. He wants us to read this and keep seeing this foolish extravagance that goes on and the sensuality, whether we're talking about eating, drinking, or sexual things, or whatever, just the whole sensuality of the empire. Just a little side note here. 
it is believed by many, and there is really good evidence for this uh, possibility. A number of very highly regarded commentaries and uh, uh, scriptural uh, students of the Bible who suggest that Ecclesiastes is written somewhere during the Persian Empire. And Ecclesiastes fits that. You might remember in Ecclesiastes, in fact, just go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and get a little idea uh, to see if that, this doesn't, isn't a perfect description of what we're seeing in the, in the Persian Empire. <clears throat> so Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Take a look beginning at verse 5. Uh, the preacher is describing what it is like to be under a foolish uh, king or ruler. In fact, from verse 5 all the way down to the end of the chapter, he talks about this. This, by the way, is one of the things that tells you that Solomon himself was not the author of Ecclesiastes, but the author of Ecclesiastes in just chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 23, puts himself in the position of Solomon. Because later he says, don't think former days are better than these, and things like that. And he talks about the present time as a time of uh, injustice and suffering and all this. And you're kind of scratching your head going, wait a minute, the days of Solomon were fantastic. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? First Kings 4 verse 20 and verse 25 just tell you that everything was just fantastic. But here then, if this is Solomon writing, then you kind of go, why is he talking about all the bad things that are happening? Why is he talking about rulers in high places that are doing all this? So I, I throw out, not that we're studying Ecclesiastes right now, but I'm throwing this out a little bit just so you can see this parallel. So look at Ecclesiastes 10 verse 5. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun. <clears throat> as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low, low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wi wisdom helps one to succeed. Now, all those words are just basically saying when a fool is reigning, he has to put a whole lot more effort into trying to get done what he wants to get done because he's a fool. <laughs> and he, he, when he tries to do something, it comes back on him. He, if, if, he's, uh, if he's quarrying stones he, and splitting logs, it's, he's liable to hurt himself or uh, do that. So foolish rulers tend to hurt themselves eventually more than anybody else. It just, they self-destruct. And that's what he's talking about here. And then you notice uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 12. He says, the, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the, of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. I was, that's my favorite. You know, you, you get this foolish king and everything. Look, he can't even find his way to the city. <laughs> it's, he's, he's a mess, you know. I mean, he, he, he's ruling. And, uh, you know, before uh, 
if you've never lived in a country, if you never had a ruler that was that way, well, read a little history and you'll read a whole bunch about them. Uh, absolute uh, biological morons. It's just terrible. <laughs> they, 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 they can't reason at all. And, and they come up with the most idiotic kinds of laws and rules and it just they just self-destruct and so this is what he's he's describing here and uh, uh, so then uh, then verse 16 he says woe to you O land when your king is a child your princes feast in the morning but happy are you O land when your king is the son of nobility your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house is leaks Bread is made for laughter. This is their motto. Bread is laid for, made for laughter. Wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Okay, never, you've never heard of a politician that taught that, did you? Yeah, it happens all the time. So anyway, there you go. Uh, a little bit of that, and I think you'll see that reflected a lot in our text. So let's, let's start, and I'm going to ask you some questions now as we get into the text and uh, listen to your observations. So you notice right in the very beginning, verse 1, you see, after these things, when the anger of the king of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. What do you, so what are your thoughts about that? What's going on there? Well, get his reputation back or get what? Maybe something else. Well, it seems like the more, more wives they were concubines or the bigger harems they have, the more powerful they seem or something. Because she's not even in the first harem. She's in the second. Well, no, we're talking about Vashti here. Yeah, Vashti. This is, this, this, we're not, yeah, but we're not Esther's. Yeah, so yeah, he remembers. But So what's he doing? What's going on? What's, what's happened that all of a sudden... The scripture would say that he's he's gone back to thinking about this. Well, so time has passed, so obviously something else has taken his attention. All right, so some time has passed by, and what's the scripture say? He he remembered Vashti. What are you remembering Vashti? And he's remembering what happened to her, and he's remembering what was decreed against her, and he remembers what she'd done. What's going on? He was drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, he's uh, sobered up, and uh, and his anger is subsided. And as uh, so often happens uh, when somebody does something in a hasty way, you start, you know, you calm down. A little bit later, you think, "Man, I miss my queen." <laughs> I didn't think there's any doubt that's what's going on here. Why, why else would this be mentioned? He just started complicating, com contemplating that. She did not become queen for four years later. Yeah, okay. he's gone to war. So we don't know where that, where this verse fits within that timeline. Yeah, um, don't know. Okay. Yeah. Because we know at least it's a, more than a year before she's chosen. Yeah, it, it is. So time has to go by and everything, but it is not until 479. This and it's 483 when he does this. Like the distance between verse 22 of chapter one and chapter two, verse one. Um, 
that's hard to say, really. Yeah. Well, it was, it was after his campaign against Greece. Right. So it had to be year two anyway. Yeah, something like that. So maybe he's gone to Greece a couple of years or year and a half or something like this, two years. I don't, I don't know. I, I never did read anything to tell me exactly how long that war is. I'm sure that's probably not hard to find, but that's where they were. Yeah, Mara? It, it looks bad with a king without a queen. <laughs> sure. Wounded pride. Yeah, I just, I just, you know, wanted to note that just because it, it's just interesting that here is the king, and you know, you, 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 we took care of it, we put out our, our edicts, and we told all the women they better submit to their husbands and all this, and then the very next verse is the king in a more sober moment goes, ah, man, where's Vashti? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> What did I do? I've, I've mentioned to you, by the way, that it was not uncommon for Persians to make big decisions while they were drunk. And they had the idea that somehow they were more in connection to the spirits or to the gods. And then they would revisit it after they weren't drunk. And if they still thought it was okay, then they would do it. Yes, Elizabeth. Um, are we supposed to compare this foolish king to God? Okay, well, in, you mean, uh, in this case, of course, it's the king that's remembering. Yeah, I'm saying, like, this phraseology, are we, are we intended to compare it to God, who's actually a good king? And yeah, and I think that's going to eventually come out. Uh, you, yeah, you, you're going to see the contrast between the foolishness of, the, of earthly leaders and then the, way, the justice of what God would actually bring. Sure, good, good point. So now notice how that compares to verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. What are the young men doing? Yeah, yeah, they apparently see the king moping around about remembering Vashti, and they go, "Well, this, this is uh, we we need to get his mind off Vashti." And so they say, "Look, uh, we'll just gather all the most beautiful virgins in in, in the whole uh, empire and uh, bring them here, and you can just uh, enjoy all of them and pick one out." So any secular dirt bag of a king is going to say that just sounds wonderful <laughs> so you you know you're getting you're getting a sense as to how god is really setting this up as as this is a disgusting human being here and this is a disgusting empire and uh, and all of those things taking place is just is just really 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 weird and so he they go into say verse 3 and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom so he, this is a very Persia's really large kingdom so he's going to appoint these officers all the kingdom and together all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel and under the custody of Haggai the uh, king's eunuch who is in charge of the women let their cosmetics be given to them them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. So remember, they have a, a really, really good uh, communication 
Roman system, and though this empire is big, they got like a Pony Express goes on, and it just goes out everywhere. So probably in a matter of days, they're harvesting young virgin women to bring to uh, the citadel here and, uh, and, and begin the process of preparing them, as, as we know a little bit later, for a whole year of cosmetics and everything to prepare them uh, for uh, coming before the king and spending a night with the king and letting him then make a choice. All right? So, uh, first, maybe first and foremost, this obviously, I would say, we would all agree, uh, this kind of thing really offends us. <laughs> we, we would, uh, if, if we were living in a country like that, we'd be going, boy, you know, if it weren't for the fact the king would kill me, we'd be uh, getting uh, picket signs and marching in the streets, uh, no more virgins for the king, you know, or something like that. No, we, we would not like that. Danny. I don't know, it sounds like a premise for the bachelor to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are they, don't they do this on TV at times here? <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Before this class, I've always pictured it as a, a beauty pageant, you know, like mm-hmm. Miss America, which is... Yeah, it just takes a step further. <laughs> a few thousand, thousand steps further. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. Now, uh, you know, when, when you read a lot... Go ahead, Drew. Well, I think probably the reason especially important to call this out is this is not a spot of consent. Like these women are doing something with their life and then you get a call one day and you get carted off. Yeah. And th- a lot of this is happening against your will and this is somebody's daughter. This is, you know, this is, I think that's the part that's especially, it's not just a beauty pageant or things like, like I understand that piece, but that's why it's, Terrible. Exactly. It is a, an absolute disruption of individual lives. And as we mentioned a minute ago, these, these girls are all going to come here. They're going to spend a night with the king, whether they wanted to or they didn't want to. Maybe some were excited about it, and I'm sure, but I'm sure there were a lot who were just like, this is terrible. But if they don't win this beauty contest, as I mentioned, they are in luxurious but desolation for the rest of their life. They're carted off to the harem and that's the end of it. And the king probably never calls you again. Why should he? He's got more virgins if he wants to call them. I think since such a thing still exists today, it's very important to remember God's structure for one woman, one man, and you don't go steal your neighbor's wife or her and bring them in as your property because there is still the largest growing religion in the world. That's what they believe. That's what their book teaches. We think this is all this was way back then. Way back then. It's today. Well, not to mention the... I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Sound of Freedom, a true story of um, approximately one million children uh, taken into slavery uh, and, uh, you know, carted all over the world and, and just used by rich Many, mostly by rich people, but at any rate, yeah, it's this is devastating. By the way, and, and there's a, many who who write about this and go, oh, the, you know, this king is just sexist and everything, and this is this is just a woman thing. Well, wait a minute. Herodotus reports that 500 young boys were gathered each year and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian co- court. 
So one might argue that uh, maybe the women had, a sl had it a slight bit better. I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, uh, that's what went on. So you see what, what, the, what the book is doing is, it's again, continuing to emphasize uh, the extravagant, sensual, sinful uh, nature and, most importantly, nobody has control over their lives. The king, at a whim, can just go, you're dead, you're alive, you're mine, you're done, you're whatever. And just like that, the queen can be deposed, somebody else can come in, uh, there, there is all of these things. So that's, that's the first thing that we need to always uh, keep in mind. Uh, so what, uh, what would you think about the, the fact that uh, uh, the author here does not stop and condemn this? Why doesn't the author say something about this, you know, this is typical, the Persians, and it's a very, very terrible thing, or something, just to comment that this is it. So a lot of people talk about that when they're studying this book. They go, why doesn't the author condemn this? This is terrible. Why does he just write it like, there's just as normal as it can be? So any answers? Yeah, Belinda. But this is not a commentary. This is just a narrative of events. Yeah, exactly. So when you read Genesis and you read bad things happen, do you? Do you read Moses stopping and going, by the way, um, Abraham lying about his wife is not a good thing? <laughs> no, you, 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 it is expected that you read this and you realize that this is terrible. And the point of it is, is to emphasize the brutality of the uh, Persian Empire and the helplessness of the citizens. Now, why do I need to be emphasized the helplessness of Esther, Mordecai, the Jews, and in fact, all the citizens? Why do I need that emphasis to, to set up the story? <coughs> That's right. You have no power. This is not by the power of Mordecai or Esther. They're not going to step up and somehow <coughs> be able to correct all of this without God. And so you, again, the author is getting you to, to realize that behind the scene there is this unseen power that is going to, is going to begin to step in here uh, at this time. All right, a uh, little answer to some questions that have been given here that have, many of you, some of you have asked me. Uh, verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa. Here's our introduction to Mordecai. A Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, so we are at 483 uh, B.C. When did Jeconiah carry, uh, when was Jeconiah and his captives carried away? Over 100 years. Yeah, what, what's the exact year? The Jeconiah was carried away. 586. Pardon? 586. That's when Zedekiah was king. When was Jeconiah king and carried away? So the previous one. May you know the second carrying away? What date? 
This is going to be on the quiz on day of judgment. 597, exactly. So it's 597. And so we have well over 100 years. If even if he was taken away as a baby, he'd be at least 110, 111 years old. Probably not. Um, people weren't really living that long at this time. So uh, when you read this, I, I would suggest that possibly what he's saying here is maybe referring to Kish or maybe even Shimei. Uh, one of his descendants was carried away, but they're in that they are carried away and then he comes from them. He's part of the captives and, and that seems to be the idea uh, because it would be hard pressed to say, well, he's you know, he, he's 110, 111 years old at this time. Um, just, just probably not the way uh, that is. But what is important about this is not to quibble about, okay, um, what does that really mean? But look beyond those details and note that the author is defining Mordecai in the context of the nation of Israel and what has happened because of their sin, he's just like all the other covenant people. He is part of the curse, but he's part of the covenant. And so in the midst of all of this ugliness that's going on with the king and Persia and all of that, there is a man who is part of the covenant, covenantal promises of God. Right in the midst, he's a pretty important guy. He sits at the gate, indicating he has some position of honor. And, uh, and, and he's then in the midst of, of this. And we want to keep the connection. In other words, the author is going, there's still a covenantal connection here with God. As bad as this looks, in this, as horrible as this empire is, there's still a covenantal connection here. Isn't that the story about no matter how bad the society gets you in, you can still be what you're supposed Yeah. Well, but but Mordecai and Esther aren't. <laughs> so so that yeah, Daniel was. We can use that example with Daniel. But in this particular case, when you try to uh, in any way justify Mordecai and Esther, you're really hard-pressed. Uh, there, there's just so many things that, uh, that would be a violation of the Torah. That yeah. reminds me of what Paul says when he gives his pedigree. I'm a Jew of Jew, gives his connection, all this kind of stuff. All that stuff made no difference. <laughs> yeah. But his connection to Christ made it. That's right. That's right. And that's, 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 see, that's a really good point that Danny made here because when you're talking about the covenantal promises, as soon as, you know, here, you, here we are reading this and we're just going, yuck, yuck, yuck. Look, well, these people are crazy. They're, you know, all this. And then all of a sudden there is a Jew named Mordecai and here is his pedigree and he's back to Kish. And you go, wait, wait, wait a minute. God is still alive and well here because God made some promises. And he has to keep these promises. And just the fact that you just say, there's a Jew. Hmm. Hmm. So springs a little hope as you see that. And it also sets up the, the tension between Mordecai and yeah. Haman. That's right. Introduction to uh, Kish. 
Kish is the, and we don't know if this is the Kish that's the father of Saul or a Kish that's later down the lineage, but it's obviously Kish uh, connected to King Saul. And because that's the, that is the lineage. Well, here's Kish, uh, Saul, and Saul, of course, for Samuel 15, was told to kill all the Amalekites and Agag the king. And Agag he saved alive, and Samuel had came and hacked him to pieces. And then the next chapter we're going to read about Haman the Agagite. And, and we're going to read that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And when, ha when uh, Mordecai is pressed as to why he doesn't bow down to Haman, he says, I'm a Jew. Oh, now the puzzle starts coming together. Now we're figuring out why this whole thing is being triggered. So that's, that's how the, the writer then is setting this up. And in fact, very, it's just kind of subtle. He just subtly says, Mordecai, the son of Kish. You know, what? I recognize Kish. <laughs> that goes back to 1 Samuel 9, you know, when, when Saul was appointed as king. So there you are. So everything's set up then for that. Now, verses 7 through 9. Um, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. All right, so here we have uh, the only time in the book where we learn that uh, uh, the, the Jewish name of Esther, Hadassah, so it never mentions that name again. So here is Hadashid by a little, little background, and this is some supposition, but uh, the, a, lot of, a lot of Hebrew, even Hebrew commentators, etc., point out that possibly the, the, the word for Esther was the, or Esther was the Persian word for star, which is transliterated in Hebrew as Ishtar, and then that was a Babylonian goddess of love and war. And so there's a supposition that she was called Esther after the Babylonian goddess of love and war. Now when you read Esther's life, do you see her as like a goddess of love and war? <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> because she's a goddess of love to the king and she's a goddess of war to those who are her enemies. And she just, she just takes it apart. So maybe, maybe that's what it is. But here's one of the interesting things. In the beginning of the book, she's referred to as Adassah. And then in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So in the beginning here, she's hiding her identity. She is going full bore. I mean, do you, do you see this woman walking in here grumbling and griping about being taken? Nope. She walks in there and goes, well, okay. If I'm in this contest, I'm in it to win. 
And she impresses everybody who comes in contact with her, including the king's eunuch. He is so impressed with her that he exalts her. And it's just like, here we go. I'm full in. I'm going to win this. <laughs> so so that's, that's what you see uh, with Esther. And yet, here in the beginning, she appears weak, doesn't reveal her identity, submits to a pagan uh, king one night with him before marriage, all these things. And at the end of the book, we get to chapter 9 and verse 29, she is called Esther, and then given, she is, is referred to as Esther, the, the um, well, let's see, where is that? Uh, Esther, the uh, daughter of, uh, get to 929 here. Um, the, the Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai, the Jew. And what's she doing? She's, she's leading the whole country. She's writing the laws. She is, she's the one who is doing all of this and conquering the Jews. So in the beginning, she's taken. She's at the mercy of the king. She's all this. She's hiding her identity at the end. She is Esther, the daughter of a Jewish woman, a Jewish man, and she is in control. So she merges the two sides of her. She merges from being a hidden Jew to a public Jewish Persian queen. Bam. And is, has, has this power. So you, you're seeing that, uh, that parallel there as, as you go on. Um, <clears throat> then notice what's said about her. So how does, how does, uh, how does the author describe her? She's drop dead gorgeous, isn't she? <laughs> oh, she was an orphan, true. Yes, uh, she's a drop-dead gorgeous orphan. Yeah, she doesn't have a mom or a dad. They died. Uh, Mordecai, her cousin, is taking care of her. But describing her, you notice the words. Beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And she was a strong believer in God, and she loved God, and she didn't know what to do, so she just went on and... No, that's not what he says. Sorry, that's in the, uh, <clears throat> the other version you know, <laughs> that somebody made up. You see, it's just about her beauty right now. Uh, Jewish commentators over the years have suggested <coughs> she is one of four of the most beautiful women in the world in the Bible. You can take a wild guess who the other three are. <laughs> I didn't guess right. Sarah. Sarah is one. Very good. Okay. You got Sarah. Rachel. And not Rachel. It is Job's daughter. No. <laughs> says she's beautiful because only one Job's daughter. Beautiful daughters. Okay. Yeah. Well, this I'm talking about what Jewish commentators said. I'm not suggesting they're right. I'm just saying this is what they said. Okay. So, so the yeah Esther was one of four women, the most beautiful women in the world, and this is Sarah. This one surprised me. Rahab, and then this one doesn't surprise me. Abigail. Okay. Now, I 
probably would have thrown in um, um, blank on the name. Uh, the 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 gal who came somebody gonna get get this far the gal who came and and uh, when David was old and and withered up and couldn't get warm the gal Abishag yeah I always thought Abishag's got to be top of the of of the of the list of the most beautiful women in the Bible huh for Rachel. Hey, I, you want to argue with the Jews? I'm just telling you. I'm just the postman. I'm reporting to you. <laughs> I didn't say I agreed with it. I just said this is what they said. <laughs> and you know, Jewish commentators know everything, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, and then you see, of course, this beautiful woman, and uh, she's just gorgeous, and everybody likes to look at her, and Haggai thinks he's, she's great, and he exalts her, and, uh, and it says she's taken with the rest of them. So you, you think, well, I wonder if she liked it or she didn't like it or whatever. Well, that's, he doesn't care what you think about it. That's not the issue. Well, why didn't she object? Why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do That's not the issue. If you get involved in all of those details, then you ruin the story. We're not here to make moral judgments about these people. We're here to see the unseen God no matter how immoral they are or whatever we judge them as. That's the real point here, and that's what the author intends for us uh, then, then to see through this. And these people, that all the women are taken, Esther's taken, who's in control? King's in control. What are you going to do? Got no choices. King's in control. And so this is how it happens, and everybody <coughs> is at the <coughs> mercy this ruthless pagan king. Uh, that, that is the idea. All right, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Um, we've already said that Esther didn't make known her people. So in spite of the fact she's taken, she doesn't do that. Verse 12, now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beauty, beautifying six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women. When the young women, woman went in to the king, in this way she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of uh, Shashgaz, uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. <clears throat> okay, what are you supposed to see, see in all that? Here again is the idea that you're supposed to go away from that and going, just shaking your head. Now, this, is, this is terrible. This is terrible what's happening then to these women. As, as Drew said, their whole lives now have been turned upside down. And uh, it seems to us, it seems in the story, the only thing the king cares about is what's this woman going to be like in bed with me for one night. Now, you can't get much lower than that. <laughs> Just like, you kidding me? You're not going to at least date her for a week and find out what she's like. You're, you're just going to judge on the basis of this. All right. So you see Mordecai 
still being very protective. You go on to verse 15 down through verse 18. You see that she, she is, he is constantly uh, trying to make sure she's okay. But when she goes in, verse uh, 16, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibbeth, in the seventh year of his reign, so there's that period of time, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, <clears throat> whatever that means. You know, what's it mean he loved her more than anybody else? What does that mean? And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins so that he set the royal crown on her, on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast, of course, that's what you do, for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts to royal generosity, etc., with royal generosity. All right. So, so again, you just, you just see this, she, she wins the contest, and if you get past all the moral stuff there, you say to yourself, hmm, a Jewish woman is queen of Persia. Glimmer of hope, maybe? See you next week. <laughs>